Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, guys, guess what? We have a Patreon. We don't talk about it that much because we're very modest, but we're talking about it now because we want you to sign up and give us money. <laughs> the Patreon is about 1989. Phil, tell them what they can win. You can win fantastic episodes for $5. Uh, you can have the audio for the entire uh, run of podcasts like it's 1989, where we talk about the films like Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Major League, Field of Dreams with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. Uh, Patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast we talk about the films of 1999 from the Savoy Theater here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today to talk about the topsy-turvy world is Karen Hahn of Slate of a New Place. <laughs> yeah, I've changed jobs since I was on here. That's how long it's been. That's how long I've procrastinated. <laughs> yes only only change, changing jobs um tough uh nothing but, else hey, has changed all, that's awesome yeah. uh you are you are this is not a joke <laughs> and this is not a slight to the other reviewers we've had you are our finest film critic Aww. one of the few critics who actually is willing to go against the grain and uh and and we're so happy to have you on this podcast i also want to tell you um that uh, I I want to tell you what I got my wife for Christmas because I think you'd appreciate. It. Oh, <laughs> I got her I got her a sweatshirt 
with director Bong's face on it because because Wait, Parasite is her. Uh, she wore it yesterday, but I can I can find it. She um <laughs> she uh she Parasite's her favorite movie. Good. So she's been obsessed with all things Bong since then. So um I think uh I, I also think you are probably one of the biggest reasons that uh director Bong Mania took hold last year as I mean so congratulations. I, I, I really believe that to be true, though. Now, admittedly, and we talked a little bit, Karen, before we were, were I believe about, it to be true. about mm-hmm. echo chambers, but like mm-hmm. within my echo chamber, <laughs> there was no question that you moved the needle for Bong. I will say, um, I was at the, the Parasite after party at New York Film Festival, and a neon exec came up to me and was like, are you Karen Han? And then thanked me for the Bong Hive hashtag, <laughs> which was insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you, you've met him, right? You've have you interviewed him? Or? Uh, I interviewed him and I moderated a Q and A. Um, so two very brief meetings uh, after. <laughs> this is like so mortifying. But after the interview I had with him, um, Sharon, yeah. his inter- his um, translator during mm-hmm. the press tour, who was there. Um, as I was getting up to leave, she was like, are you Bong Hive? And I was like, yeah. And then she turned right around and to director Bong, she was like, this is the lady who started your fan club. And he's like, oh, why would you do that? I'm so sorry. It's perfect. It's a yeah. perfect interaction. Yeah. Can I also good. say right. that well, like, here, here it is. Ooh. Can you see it? Yeah. That's yes. a good sweatshirt. That, that's it's a, a it's him in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. What's that? And uh, it, it's great. Um, a hoodie is even better. Yeah, just yeah. I also she, it, just think it's that, her top sweatshirt. It's the sweatshirt <laughs> you wear as soon as it comes out of the wash. Amazing. Uh, it's perfect. Um, I, I, I will just say, though, one of the things that I don't know that people talked about as much, but the way that Neon handled mm-hmm. the whole Oscar, like, like Sharon in particular, mm-hmm. added this level of sort of, of she was really funny in and of herself. And it just made the whole translation thing not feel as, I don't know, onerous as it can, I guess, to some she people. Really I don't, I don't good. know. She's good. She's great. Yeah. yeah. It was great. It was, and, and I actually just recently watched the, the Criterion of, of Parasite as well and, and was just floored by it all over again. Like, it, it's just, it's an unbelievable movie. Speaking of onerous translations. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> wait, wait, what? A seamless <laughs> transition. Um, were you not a fan of this movie, Kenny? No, <laughs> I'm gonna. I knew it was gonna go one way or the other. He was either gonna be like super into it, or he Phil was did text me. He was like, "I don't think Kenny knows this movie is three hours long." <laughs> I, I, uh, history with Topsy Turvy uh, for me is va- virtually nothing. Uh, never saw it before. Remember it distinctly in 1999, being mm-hmm. um, a movie that was very well reviewed. Um, on the, on very, uh, on a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year. Um, certainly in contention for, uh, best picture. I do believe Mike Lee was nominated, right? No. For best it just director. got a no? makeup, makeup and costumes, I want to say. Oh, okay. Well, either way, it was, it was a very high, it was in the conversation for sure. Certainly yeah. a very, very highly regarded film that year. Um, being a, you know, a little, um, 17 year old hellion. I wasn't about to go see uh, Gilbert and Sullivan show a movie at the time, but since I think my tastes have refined, and uh, I certainly, I, I certainly 
am open to a movie like this. And as listeners of the podcast know, uh, I'm a rabid musical theater fan. Mm-hmm. So, and a rabid, a rabid musical theater fan and a rabid, you know, musical film fan. So you'd think that this would fall in my wheelhouse, but uh, I think, uh, I, let's get into the film. I need two intelligent people to explain <laughs> to me why this is good because I can't figure it out. And the plethora of reviews and also the deep dive I did into Gilbert and Sullivan um, didn't help me. <laughs> Well, can, well, one of us is very smart, so Karen will definitely be able to convince you of it, I think. But I just want to give a little bit of context in terms of when I saw the film. I saw it in 99. I actually saw it with past and future guest Jan Katask, who does our theme song and our artwork. Uh, Jan's father was actually in a rendition of the Mikado, I believe in the 70s or 80s, if I'm not mistaken, um, or maybe even earlier than that, for all I know. Um, so Jan knew about Gilbert and Sullivan to a certain degree I knew very little about them and I remember seeing this film and I remember thinking it's very good but I was a little bored I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't you know I was 19 and I hadn't seen a lot of Mike Lee's movies I think up until that point I probably had only seen Secrets and Lies and I was just sort of like I just didn't totally get it Um, this time around much, much, I enjoyed it much, much more. Um, and I felt like I got a lot more out of it. But Karen, did you see this around then? What's your history with Mike Lee? Are you a fan? I'm a huge Mike Lee fan. I'm a, a Lee head, but um, I didn't see Topsy Turvy uh, when it came out, obviously. Um, right. Not to brag, but I was seven. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I've only seen it like more recently, which is when I've started paying more attention to Mike Lee's work. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the thing is, he, Mike Lee is known for kind of a more naturalistic style in his movies. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but one of his whole things is allowing his cast to improvise extensively and just capturing that. Um, and I think that vibe is not really one that's necessarily easy to grok with, um, especially if you're expecting something that's maybe more linear or more focused. Um, I watched this with my partner at the end. He was like, there was, there were like a million things that just got brought up and then never addressed again. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of just what Mike Lee does. Is, is, is it our, cause I was, you know, I'm aware of that with, uh, Mike Lee and is it our, our understanding of this particular film that it was that improvisational? Because it's very hard for me to believe that these cat, that these actors we're able to improvise in the dialect of 1880s. You know, so I think it's Victorian I, England. I want to give just a little bit of context to this, to our listeners. And also I learned this more specifically today as well, in terms of Mike Lee's process and how it actually did affect this specific film. Generally what he does is before he begins a project, he doesn't even have a script. He doesn't have he a sits, script. He doesn't have a script. He sits down one-on-one with actors and they build a character together. And then this whole process takes can take up to six months of, of rehearsals and what have you. It's one-on-one. They build a character from the ground up, and then he literally takes all these creations of these characters and then just starts sending them into situations together that he just watches from a distance. I mean, this is all insane, but he, like, mm-hmm. watches these interactions. Then they build stories together and then they essentially improvise scenes, the assistant's taking notes, and then Mike Lee takes those and turns that into a script. Now, 
this is the that's, first film that that's fucking awesome. How yeah, cool no, it's awesome. That? Yeah, it's fucking great. Yeah. Um, but this film was his first period piece and his first film based on real people. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he cast these people and then said, go do a shit ton of research and then come back to me. We'll do more conversations and then we'll do what he does, which is he put all these okay. people together and then he found the film as it came sort of together in front of him. It sounds insane. Dick Pope, who's his long-time cinematographer, says that he doesn't know anything he's filming on the day that he shows up. He just figures it out, as, which is just insane. But it's awesome. Okay. It's awesome. But to your point, Kenny, I think that the... And Mike Lee talks about this on the special features on the Criterion. He talks about sort of how he knew he wanted to make a film about Gilbert, Gilbert and Sullivan, and that was kind of all he knew. And then he sort of was like, okay, I'm going to focus in on Princess uh, Idea. Idea? Yeah. Idea? And I, then I think, yeah, the, the, the Sorcerer Ida. and then the Mikado. Yeah. 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 Ida. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, I think to your point, Kenny, what I noticed this time, and I don't know if you did too, Karen, but mm-hmm. like the, <laughs> the pacing is very deliberate. Like you mm-hmm. do find yourself just being like, I'm in a scene, and in that individual scene, I'm interested in what's going on, but I can't really tell you necessarily how it all fits into the mosaic of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next <laughs> week, I'm talking to you. I mean, go ahead, Karen. Yeah. Um, that's what I was going to say, where it's like, I think another thing that makes it tough is like when you're in the middle of it, it's as Phil's kind of saying, it's hard to see exactly where it all fits in. But wh- I think once you're done especially for me around the point when um, Jim Broadbent starts to realize what he wants to write the next thing about, that's when it all starts to, when everything preceding that starts to fall into place for me, where like, oh, I see how everything kind of leads up to this. And it's almost easier to see it as like a series of little boxes that have been constructed where it's like, this is where it's ultimately going. And this is how all of it has kind of built up to this thing. And it is kind of funny that it's, when you talk about this film to other people, you're like, oh, it's about Gilbert and Sullivan writing the Mikado. But then that is like a third of the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. It takes an hour to get to the Mikado. Is it Mikado? Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce Mikado. it? Or is it Mikado? The Mikado. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I don't it's, know. it's just, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, don't, I do think that um, it, it is very interesting how, because I checked to see what how far we were into the film before mm-hmm. the Mikado even like comes into existence in any sh- way. Um, and, and he does this fractured narrative stuff too, where like you'll then flash forward to a performance from the Mikado mm-hmm. as like almost yeah. at the beginning of the inception of the idea. It's really interesting how he plays with time in this as well. And it's not in a showy way. Um, so much so that it's almost more confusing because <laughs> you're just like, wait, where am I in time? Um, but yeah, it, it's, I, I don't know. I, I was, this was also a film that as I was watching it, there were certainly times where I was like, okay, this feels a little bit slow here. But then when the film was done, I've just spent the last 24 hours just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It just, it really, it, it's really stayed with me. It's a, it's a weird uh, experience for me watching because, again, two hours and 40 minutes. I wasn't <laughs> bored. Mm-hmm. No, really, I wasn't yeah, bored. Yeah. I think I think Karen kind of made that point. Like, the actors are so strong. The scene work is so strong. The production value is so strong. Like, it really, you really do feel like you're in a moment 
uh, with every scene. But the other thing that I couldn't help but feel is um, where's the character development? Where's the emotional way in? Where's the arc? Uh, what are the stakes? Um, all these kind of classic things that I just, I, I, I didn't feel like there was any place for me to kind of, you know, kind of, kind of hook onto and have them go with me. So I think that the argument that you watch the film, you step back from the film, you see what they've done at the end of it, and then you kind of appreciate what it is, is a fine one. And I keep, and I've kept thinking about how exactly to, to frame my, frame the discussion from my point of view, which is essentially not everything is for everybody. Like I, I can appreciate, I can appreciate this, this film and I can appreciate that it was successful on its own terms. Uh, but I I also, not everything is for everybody's like a core tenet of every field of criticism. I feel like, well, it should be right, but it it should be. And this is part of why I think you're such a great critic because, because, the, the the hive mind that has taken over uh, criticism in the age of Twitter uh, mm-hmm. is is embarrassing. It's embarrassing that we have a, a a acceptable list and an unacceptable list. And if you like something from the unacceptable list, you're an idiot. If you likes if you don't like something from the acceptable acceptable list, you're a monster. And I I I. I I'm not afraid of that, frankly. Like I know, you know, I've done it on this podcast many times where I've, you know, <laughs> gone against the grain and I'm happy to do that. I love doing that. But um but this one in particular, I don't take a lot of joy in going against the grain on that. I I I feel like I got it, and I feel like at the end of the day, it's just not for me. I will never watch this movie again. Oh, I I would argue that there are emotional arcs. It's just that they're not set up in the same way that you would find in a more traditional narrative movie where it's like one big arc. I'm doing gestures that won't come across at all in audio format, but whatever. Um, You got to pay for people. You got to pay for the the video. (laughs) Yeah, Subscribe to Patreon. You'll get to see what I'm doing. Um, (laughs) Where a traditional movie, if this is the beginning and end, the arc goes like this. It's one big arc. Whereas in this case, it has everything to do, I think, with the fact that they've done this kind of strong character work. And it's all like little arcs, like chain link, that are all kind of set up across the other. And the, really the biggest arc, I would say, is Gilbert's. Because you see his frustrations with like Princess Ida. And then the big thing is like, is he, is, the Mikado, is the Mikado going to be well received? And then um, it's almost like Pixar's soul in a way, where it's like, wh- then when everyone loves it, he's like, okay, whatever. Like he, he doesn't yeah. derive that satisfaction <laughs> yeah. from it. But like yeah. that in itself is such a funny moment, especially, <clears throat> and it's so sad when his lovely wife played by Leslie Manville is like oh. obviously trying to get him to be a little more vulnerable and intimate around her. And then he like just oh, so sad. doesn't know it's, how it's to react best. to it. And the, then yeah. the last three yeah. scenes are gorgeous. They, They're unbelievable. They, they almost, they almost saved the movie. For me, <laughs> but, uh, but what, I, what about, I, what about when I the chorus fights for 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 I, Timothy Spall's solo? It's a great scene. Nothing for me, dude. That, 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 oh. that, first of all, it's the first of all that that I hated that scene. What? It's the same. It's the same. It's the same scene they did in Rudy. Okay, so that's what? that is. The, 
That is Mike the Lee level. is a big Rudy fan, though, so that makes sense. I mean that. I mean that. I mean that one hundred percent as an insult. Um, <laughs> that is the level of drama you're working with there. The level of drama you're working with is, and I and, and I love Rudy on its own terms, which is a which is a sappy underdog sports story. Mm-hmm. But to have the whole company come up and do that and come against no resistance whatsoever. I mean, it happened, um, but but okay. Did it? Yes. <laughs> In real life, it happened. It, it happened fought. like it happened yeah. like that. Yeah, per Mike okay. Lee. Well, they that, fought. <laughs> the whole chorus fought for his solo, and that's why and, you put it back in. And Gilbert, and Gilbert offered no resistance. Well, I don't know. Offered no resistance, but like ultimately capitulated and put it's, the song back it's, in. It's it's it ultimately <clears throat> uh, it ultimately also felt pretty stakesless. Uh, and and I'll tell you a big That's reason why the whole life. thing felt stakeless. You're not going to be like, oh shit! Like the whole world's going to die if I don't turn in my homework tomorrow. Like that's not what real life that's, is, which is the I, I, entire. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm talking to the world's foremost John Wick fan. I don't go to the movies for. I don't want to move to real life necessarily. It's okay, but but saying something's not real life doesn't necessarily. It's not a. It's not. It's it, that that that's not in and of itself. No, uh, I, I'm a not for being. I sure. it, it, it just it it the main reason it doesn't do much for me is because whether this actor who plays the lead in every single one of these productions and is the most famous actor in these productions is going to get his solo in their fucking 12th production does not have the stakes for me. It doesn't work for me the same way as even in Rudy, where if Rudy doesn't play in that game, that's it. This thing he worked for the entire movie doesn't happen. So I think that that like, like starting from the beginning and, and, but this doesn't make really it different like, that everyone in the company who who do have a lot to lose, where they're not the most famous actor and they haven't been the lead on all these shows, all these people that very clearly think that Gilbert would just fire them. Like it does I think Which it is makes prefaced it, in the previous scene too, when the actors are like, Be careful, this is career yeah. suicide if you do this. Like, I mean, this is there, there are stakes, but I know yeah, what you're saying. They're, I'm they're, I'm not really sure <clears throat> whether that's a good thing or not. Um, that all these actors felt a certain way about this man. Who, sure. who then immediately acted in a completely different way. I don't know what happened over the course of this film that changed Gilbert. I, I, I maybe that Ida wasn't a wild success. I think what I think my problem comes from where in Gilbert and Sullivan's career this this takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, they are already the biggest, <clears throat> the, the, the biggest opera the biggest opera stars in England and have been for 20 years. They are, one of them is already knighted. They are already millionaires at the time. They are friends with the Churchills. These people have almost nothing to lose. So it's not actually, it's not, and it can't be for me about worrying whether or not this particular production is going to be successful. And I I don't think that's really what the film is about. Yeah, yeah. Go well, ahead. Can I, I mean, my, my my counter to that would be, and I and I, I would argue that perhaps the spine of this movie is the relationship between Gilbert and Sullivan, and we're coming into this movie at a time when that relationship is tenuous. I mean, what I think the film does really beautifully is actually sort of shine a light on the idea of what it's like to have a creative partnership and how special and fragile that type of relationship is. And I think that their scenes together, where you sense in Gilbert not just a 
um, a defensiveness about perhaps being repetitive and using topsy turvydom all the time, but also feeling like he could lose his friend and he could lose his creative partner and, and that that could slip through his fingers, which is very real. I, I think you're, I think you're right. I'm not convinced the movie made that case. And I, 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 this brings me to like my, my kind of bigger issue with this. That is 100%, I think, taste. Uh, I don't think Gilbert and Sullivan are good. Um, well, I, I, mean, I don't think that I think it does. I think it does. I think it does in, in actually like a Studio 60 kind of way. If, if <laughs> Everyone's the, favorite if, TV show. If the scripts, if the, if the show in Studio 60 isn't good, yeah. it's impossible for me to believe these guys are good writers. And I think in the end of the day, Gilbert and Sullivan are extremely repetitive both in terms of the content and in terms of the music. I think there's a reason they're not particularly respected um, in, in, in the opera community. And I happen to like, the, I, I only was able to get this on YouTube with, with um, subtitles. <laughs> I think that, I think that hurts it too. English yeah, subtitles. <laughs> English. So sure. I think I, 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 well, no, no, no. I mean, what's the, what's the y'all come on? I don't get that. What? You mean you watch Topsy Turvy on YouTube with subtitles for two hours and forty minutes? Yeah, what's the big deal? Okay, if I, I mean, watch, I, I okay, I, I I watch a lot of stuff with subtitles. If like if, no, if the, it's on YouTube, well, anyway, whatever. It's the only place you can get it. It is true. I mean, short of him buying the Criterion, mm. unfortunately, it's not available. Streaming it, it's not available right anywhere. Now, so so I, that's not. I, I I understand where you're coming from. But the um. The the point I want to make is like okay I'm also an opera fan and a big thing about oh, opera is I don't speak Italian I don't you don't need to know the lyrics to get to 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 get the emotion Feel the emotion yeah but the but but a comic opera like Gilbert and Sullivan's operettas um you do need to understand the lyrics which is fine that's a different medium but I think the lyrics hurt it because I think these Operators are so silly. They're 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 just like they're absurd. So all right, that's that's, that's my also, piece. Is that not sort of the point of these of these operettas? Maybe. Like that's <laughs> I, part I, of why Sullivan is frustrated because he thinks it's not an inherently serious medium. Or or at the very least that Gilbert is not giving him the subject matter with which to be able to right. imbue it with that level of depth, which is what he's hoping to do. And then I think at the end, what you're supposed to believe is this is this is at the very least Sullivan's lane or at the most the way Sullivan is Correct. best utilized as an artist. So and I and, and I do think like necessarily Mike Lee must love Gilbert and Sullivan. And there are people who love Gilbert and Sullivan. Like that's the thing. Uh, again, uh, this is taste. I don't. I don't I that. understand them. Like I don't understand the thing. I'm not. I, I will like at all. I will like, say you this. Don't like any of their music, or just uh, I think all of the music's the same. But I think the HMS. I think the HMS Pinafore is is good. Um, and I think Pirates of Penzance is bad. And I think <laughs> I think the Mikado is quite bad. But that's those are the three. Well, I the Mikado. Well, I mean, we need to unpack the yeah. Mikado in just uh, in its own way um, in a bit. But I, I, I'll say this: um, I'm not a fan of Gilbert and Sullivan necessarily. Like, they're I don't put on their music. I don't particularly <laughs> listen to it. Uh, I know of some of their music. I don't have the same 
uh, and I don't mean this to sound harsh, but I don't have the same disdain that Kenny has perhaps towards their music as he does, but I'm also like not a fan. For me, and this is going to sound kind of weird, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan of all is almost a side thing to me yeah. in this movie. Like it's not really what I latch onto. Like mm-hmm. Mike Lee has been sort of open about the fact that he wanted to make a film about quote unquote production. The idea mm-hmm. of turning the camera around on what we do, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, this is about the I don't want to say the absurdity, but the idea of storytelling and and filmmaking and 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 uh the 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 behind the scenes of it all. There's a reason why I imagine Aaron Sorkin loves this movie, because the whole fucking thing is behind the scenes of of a thing. Um and and as we know from Studio 60, he's seems to be a fan of Gilbert and Sullivan. But yes. I just think that this movie to me is more about the characters and yeah. less about the subject matter. And that that's that's just where I, that that maybe that's why I locked into it a little bit more emotionally um than than Kenny did, but I think you know what maybe what I'm saying, hopefully. Yeah, I agree totally with that. And also like I think there are some instances in which the artist that you're trying to depict is really inextricable from what you're doing. Like Amadeus, I think, sure. is a huge example of this, not just because the movie is named after the character, but because the fact right. that he's a genius is like such a big part of this. Yes. But in this case, I think it makes some impact that we're talking about Gilbert and Sullivan, because especially because right now we know the like lasting impact that their music has had um, in the musical theater world and the opera world. But I don't think we hold the same reverence necessarily as we do for Mozart um, for the things that Gilbert and Sullivan made. And to that end, I almost think you could sub in another pair of artists without it suffering too dramatically in that, in that sense. Well, what's, what's interesting about what we were saying too, is that if you take the Gilbert and Sullivan out of it, right. And, and in, and in turn, perhaps even take out the musical set pieces or musical, what have you, um, it, it's it's more of a Mike Lee movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> ironically. The stuff that 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 all that brings and the baggage that comes with it, I think, makes it less of a Mike Lee film in a weird way. Yeah, it's it's unlike any Mike Lee film I think that's ever been made. I think that's very clear. Um, I I I don't think you can you can, and I don't think you guys are are saying this, but I don't think you you can. St- Take the Gilbert and Sullivan out of it. Gilbert and Sullivan were chosen for a reason. Sure. I think we, I think we do have to accept that Gilbert, Gilbert and, and Sullivan are, to a lot of people, a cornerstone of narrative entertainment. Mm-hmm. So you know they weren't chosen by accident. You know if you're not gonna, you know, I mean, some people compared this to Shakespeare in Love, uh, and and not in a you know derisive kind of way. This was yeah. one pillar from the you know Elizabethan times and a pillar from the Victorian, Victorian times. Yeah. This is a this this is not you know a, a, any any twosome. So I do think that the the I do think that that the attempt was maybe not that these are two geniuses at work, but one plus one equals a genius. And I think that was mm-hmm. I think that was clear um, with this with this with this movie. But the movie yeah. it's ironically the movie that that this is most similar to of any movie I've ever seen is a movie from 1999, which is Cradle Will Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, Cradle Will Rock is an extremely similar premise and also is the kind of thing where we're dealing with well-known figures, in this case from American the- uh, theater history, and then putting on a production. Now, I didn't like that Cradle of Rock the first time I saw it either, and then we then we watched it again and I actually yeah. quite liked it the second time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's true, so you maybe, did. I, yeah. maybe, maybe that'll happen if I watch Topsy Turvy again. <laughs> but uh, 
and, and go ahead, go ahead. Phil. I was, no, I was no. gonna say I I I I actually do think you would like it if you more if you watched it again. And I don't yeah, say that to be to, to be uh, combative. I I do think that this film. I watched it yesterday. I was thinking about it a lot. Then I watched the special features today. And it's like it it went to a whole new level with me, being able to see Mike Lee talk about it, being able to see him talking with the musical director and all the various things that he was doing. It, it really kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of, it checked a lot of boxes for me that it didn't um, maybe do yesterday. So I, I don't know what that says, but. So I can appreciate yeah. that it's good. <laughs> what I can't understand is why Ebert, for instance, Yes. Finishes his review with, this is a masterpiece, one of the best films of the year. Yeah. And my, my understanding for 22 years now is, this is a masterpiece. Um, I don't know. It's not even my favorite. <laughs> it's not even my favorite Jim Broadbent film from this period of time. But <laughs> I mean, he was a movie I, I, two years later. He, so, was, he was. He was. And he was fantastic. He's so fantastic. I, Jim Broadbent's always good. He's never bad. Yeah, great yeah. actor. Uh, but that's that's the thing I I can't really crock. Um, why this is a masterpiece and Cradle Will Rock is forgotten. Well, one of us is a critic, and I'd like to know <laughs> what yeah, she thinks about I'd why like this is why yes. this is deemed a masterpiece. I think it's just everything about it comes together so well like we like like Kenny stated like the performances are incredible the direction is incredible the set design is incredible like every single part of it works on that molecular level the I guess the big problem that we're encountering in our discussion of it is whether or not Mike Lee's approach really works for this material, whether the fact that this is maybe a more fractured look at these people's lives works. I mean, I'm obviously of the opinion that it does work um, in so much as you can tell to such a degree how much work all of these people have done into making their characters seem like real people to the point that you get so much out of the moments that you do spend with them that it doesn't really matter as much that their plots don't necessarily resolve like Shirley Henderson's characters like alcoholism and the fact that she has a child and but is a single mother that informs the way that we feel about her the way that we view her interactions with everybody else how much she wants to keep this job because that's what she can do and the only thing she can do um as a single woman and it doesn't and the emotional connection is what matters more than the fact that like oh what's gonna happen is she gonna find a man is she gonna get fired like that that's not it's not the ends aren't necessarily what matters, which I think is a hard thing to do in a movie without making it seem like you're not talking about anything at all. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I, I agree with with everything you just said. I, I think that you know, there's something very sort of um, impressionistic about the way Mike Lee makes movies, and I think that that impressionistic um, or impressionism or whatever you want to call it can make his grounded character intimate movies that he does so resonant and yet in a situation like this where perhaps um it's antithetical to the musical biopicness of what perhaps um people i mean this movie did very well creatively in terms of the critics really loved it, it got 79 percent from audiences so it, the audiences seem to like it as well for the most part but but it is asking a lot of you yeah it's like, asking I a lot of you a sleepover <laughs> Unless you know, it just depends. Movie, and I picked it. 
If you're with the Hasty Pudding Society at Harvard, you might play. <laughs> you right. might, you might do it at theirs. And they, they do plenty of sleepovers. I do I, think I it is like, interesting. Oh, sorry. 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 I, mean, no I feel like in that sense, it's almost com- comparable to Happy Go Lucky. If either of you guys have seen that, the movie that he made with oh, Sally Hawkins. I love Happy Go Lucky. Yeah. Where, like, I think maybe that is a, the distilled essence of what's going on here, in so much as ultimately nothing really happens in that movie like some characters experience uh volatile moments but they don't necessarily become different people by the end of the movie um that has the benefit of really only having two primary characters really um whereas this it feels maybe a lot more spread out because there's a million characters in it i think it's also you know it's it's so like watching this film yesterday I, I was really hit with the specificity the attention to detail i mean it there is a lot of gilbert in mike lee mm-hmm. um <laughs> you know in the way that you know what i mean like in the or way that he approached grump. he's a grump um but but also just in terms of how they um they both approach material Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating about when we get to the Mikado portion of the film is how adamant Gilbert is that it be culturally sensitive, and yet like it is culturally deeply history, insensitive. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. There's this, this weird where, sort of yeah. push and pull going on there, yeah, which I, feels I, apropos. We should <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, yeah let's that's, do it. Now that that's not a that, that's that's not an insignificant you know no, point no, no. you just made, and and shit. Uh, I mean, you know, look, was Gilbert the, the 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 most progressive guy of his time? Like, I, I, the, the, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But, I don't I mean, know the answer to that. But, but I think that you know, on one on one respect, obviously, it was ill conceived. On another respect, opera has a great tradition of playing in other people's cultures. That's that's I I, I mean, great. Not like it's a great thing. I mean, great in, ter- in terms of in terms of it, like a vast gas of it. Yes, yes, it's huge. Vast. It's it's happened over and over and over again. That's not an that's not an unusual. Uh, that's not an unusual impulse for a for someone who composes operas to have. Um, literally happens all the time. Um, so you start from there. If you're going to do that, even in 1885. The right way to do it is to consult people who are actually in that culture, which he tried to do, like um, kidnapping them and dragging them to the theater, essentially. But yeah, yes, sure. yes. It was. It, well, hey, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, boy, is it cringy now? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. It's the way that I feel yeah, about please, it. Like, the the Mikado has at this at this point in time in 2021 had a very very rocky history up to this point, where obviously no one watching it at that time was like, "Oh, I find this problematic." Like, no one yeah. probably knew that word or used that word in that context. But um, mm-hmm. current, like, w- we've talked about it so much, especially as it has continued to be produced with all white casts or in other cases, theater companies have tried to produce it with just all Japanese cast members. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about it a lot to the point that I don't know, I'm generally pretty ambivalent about Gilbert and Sullivan's work. And I hadn't actually really heard many of the songs from the Mikado prior to watching the movie. Like the only one that I knew was um, the one that's in the producers is like somebody comes on and does a really bad audition with it. Um, (laughs) But it's. I feel like Mike Lee addresses it about as well as he can, given the context of the movie and like given historical accuracy. And it is funny to see 
Gilbert almost like becoming the first weeb where he's yep. like, I love katanas. It's something. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's, no, I think you could still do it. I, I mean, I, I think, well, if I guess you this is the money to do it. Like, I don't think someone would fund this if they didn't know who you were. Right. I guess, can I piggyback on your question, Kenny? Because I think I, there's, there's kind of a broader question I have here a little bit, which is that, is there, so let's just take the, the, the three sisters scene mm-hmm. um, in particular, right? Where, where, which, which by the way, Mike Lee says is, one of quote unquote the most remarkable scenes of his career he feels <laughs> because they were so time constrained that he couldn't do the coverage he wanted to do. So what it forced the situation to be was a lot more chaotic within the frames that he had. And he loves the scene because of the energy that's packed into it with this sort of chaotic kind of, we have to get this done now, um, which I think is interesting. But my question is more about the reverence that Gilbert is giving these characters and this material, which feels progressive. And yet at the same time, based on the period that it takes place in, it's not. And I guess I'm just no, sort of wondering, it's, like, it's, that, it's that progressive feels like based on the period it takes place in. It's regressive to, based on now. Yes, yes, it, yes. At the moment, it was progressive. But, like, I don't think – I mean, look, I – I guess what I'm trying to say is like the reason I don't think you'd make it now is because the opera is racist. It's even it's like that is racist for the time. Like the character right. names were all jokes, right? The char- the country is not Japan. The country is Titty Poo. Like don't forget this stuff that that they that they they made it. They made a lot of decisions to make it as silly as possible. And then on top of that, the narrative of the, of the Mikado is like it's like uh, it, it's like the kind of stuff that 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 like white people would write about Native Americans. Like it's that same level of like you're a it's a, it's the same level of noble savage shit, right? Right. I think based on based on the story is not the Mikado, but about the creative people who were making it. Like, yeah, I I think. I, Which is why I said it's more of a study question. Like, I don't mean to like. I mean, that's kill why the film or no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's why I think that it's. I don't consider this film offensive or something that wouldn't get made right now. Like, if I saw this film come out this year, I wouldn't think, oh, this movie. Like, because it's not that the filmmaker shares the views that these characters right. or that this time period has, and you can clearly tell that. And in the way that I that don't scene know if framed. I agree. I'll, t- I'll take it a step further. I don't know if I agree because I mean, what about all the movies ref- that still use racist slurs or still portray slavery? Like, what is the difference? Fucking bad. But like, <laughs> so I, you're saying I, those I, movies I, wouldn't get made now because they're still getting ta- made all the time. I could tackle those in a second. I'll, I'll make the the particular point about this one thing uh, using the scene that you just used, Phil, in context. The reason that scene is quote unquote successful is because Gilbert is able to, within the context of the chaos, teach these three white English women to walk like Japanese women. And that was the goal of the scene, and that is what a successful 
That is that is the successful outcome of that scene to have them walk, quote unquote, like Japanese people. I I don't think that they're at, at the best. At, at the, the most generous take on it, I think, is that it was neutral towards the material. Right. That the, I don't that, think so. I think that, it makes it clear that Gilbert is kind of an idiot about this stuff. Like the scene where he's like brandishing the katana and thinking that he's so cool isn't intended to say like, oh, look how cool this white guy is because he has a katana. And I think the same thing goes for that scene where it's not saying, oh, look how like I don't think it's necessary. It's I don't think it's lauding him for being more progressive than the period that he's living in. And I don't think it's meant to make him seem more heroic in the audience's eyes. No, I, I think it's meant. I, I think uh, what I'm getting is, I think it's oblivious to it. I think it's oblivious to 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 the problems with the Mikado. Um and that's from a 1999 point of view. Do that scene, if you were oblivious to the problems, I think that they would do anything in the moment to make him look like an ass. I think they did that in the beginning with the um, with with the Ida stuff. I think they. I think the stuff with the. I. I think they will make their make those characters look like asses, no matter what it was. And it just so happens that at that moment, it was a katana that made him look like an ass. I'm going to give a synopsis for the for for Topsy Turvy for our audience who might not have heard it uh, or watched it for that matter. Just take two seconds and give us a, a little bit of context before we uh, dive back into the Mikado. Although Karen looks like she wants to say something, so maybe Karen should should speak. No, yeah. I think she disagrees so strongly, and especially as someone of Asian descent, I yeah, I don't agree. No, but I mean, I don't mean to tell you when to be offended. So please continue. I, I, I don't. I, I guess I don't understand. Which is okay. Which is you know. I please tell me what's up. I mean, that's the if you scene, don't mind. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think what the end result of the scene is not. Oh, look how funny Gilbert is because he doesn't understand Japanese culture. It's it's a cringe scene. Like it, he clearly doesn't. Even though he's trying, he clearly doesn't really understand what he's working with. And the only people who really come out of that scene unscathed are the Japanese women that he has imp- kind of shanghaied employed. into coming there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I was going to say employed, but I was like, that's not the right word for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think that I, I think that that one of the reasons that Mike Lee likes that scene is because of all the stuff that's all those sub all the currents that's going through it. I think that he likes the 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 messiness of it the chaotic component of it but to your point karen i think that he also i i would argue perhaps likes the fact that the japanese people are the people that come out of that scene unscathed uh, okay i think what i'm getting at is a it's a more global point and the reason why i said i don't think this would be made today i think this narrative depends on the mikado being a, being a success which it was I think the the point of this movie is that these people and this company were able to come together to build something successful and I would also say beautiful. Right? I think that's very clear from the from the way this is framed. Um also something beautiful and transcendent and long lasting. I think 22 years later in a world where the Mikado isn't even performed anymore, except with an all Japanese cast, um, you wouldn't make a film that presented this as something that was a success. And again, I, I, I'm not trying in any way to say this is on the level of like a, like a 
birth of a nation or something that's like over the top awful like that. But like that was a success. That movie was on the AFI top hundred in 1998 like that movie was a massive commercial success and you just would never make a movie in a million years about dh lawrence dw lawrence um dw griffith dw griffith (laughs) you'd never make a movie about dw griffith's success making birth of a nation you do you you wouldn't you shouldn't you can't it's 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 wrong and I think the Mikado is not nearly on that level, but I do think it's walking a line where it's just like there's a reason that people don't perform this anymore. It's distasteful at this point, I think. I mean, I I think there actually was a fairly recent production of the Mikado that was performed with White Cast, but the whole point of that was – but the fact – and it didn't make it like right or anything, but it still sparked a bunch of discussion. And I feel, I don't know. It's like, if you're saying that, I mean, how far would you take that? Where it's like, uh, you would never make a movie about the making of Lawrence in Arabia because that movie includes Brownface, even though it's one of considered one of the best movies ever made. Like, I feel like this is about, I don't, I wouldn't say this is as good as it gets, but I feel like this, it doesn't ping my radar in the same way because it's not portraying this as good or right. And again, it's not on that extreme level. Like this did not cause a fundamental shift in racial violence against the race that it was making fun of. Like it's not, yeah. There, there, there is an argument. I think what you're saying with the recent performance of the Mikado is that they kind of undercut the, I assume, right. That, that they were playing against the, the, they were playing against the types that were established by white actors and, 1880 or something to that effect like this was, it was it was it, yeah but but there is a way to, to there's a way to make a movie about the making of lawrence arabia there's a way to make the movie make a movie about the the making of birth of a nation and there's a way to make a movie about the you know making of the mikado there's a, there there's certainly ways to do any of this stuff you can make a movie about anything i'm not trying to say you can't make a movie about anything but i don't think you could be i think they were neutral i guess that's what i'm saying and i think neutrality in this case you know uh, is equal to obliviousness. And I think that in and of itself is a little damning because yes, it didn't lead to racial violence, but like, frankly, like it probably wasn't a great thing for the Japanese community in, in England at the time to have a movie, you know, to have a, have a play where the characters are from Titty Poo and they were called Poo Poo and Kaka. And they were, you know, marrying their sisters and all these things that were kind of, you know, horrible that were, that were here that were played for laughs. So just like it's not a great thing to have Mickey Rooney playing, uh, you know, yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's. This isn't like it's not the end. It's 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 not birth of a nation. But these are things that like did not they they, they did not progress our our, our culture. I I, I I agree that they don't progress our culture. And I de- agree that they need to be called out for racism because it doesn't matter like to what degree something is racist. If it is racist, that's kind of the end of the argument. But I. I also think there's it's valuable to talk about that like it's not like any kind of um, flaw in our history it's something that's you have to discuss if you're discussing that point in history and I think almost implicitly it does get into it like the way that Gilbert is introduced to Japanese culture is by going to a museum where they have Japanese people who don't necessarily seem to be like 
I don't know. It feels very sideshowy that the way that they are being like performing in the museum. Like I maybe he just did that for historical accuracy, but for me, within the context of that scene with um, the way that I feel the three sisters scene plays out and how he portrays Gilbert's fascination with Japanese culture, it all seems it's not maybe as damning a portrait of colonialism as we would want it to be, but it it isn't not acknowledging the fact that this is a problematic work and has problematic origins. I I also think it's worth saying too, and not not to not to subscribe to whateverism and all of that, but I I do think that fundamentally, and this isn't to remove Gilbert and Sullivan from the film, and I'm not suggesting that, but I do think that this feels like a movie about the making of a play of the absurdity of making movies, productions, what have you. I mean, Mike Lee talks on the, on the commentary about the intentionality of, of just of the make of, of the wigs and of the, of seeing how they're sort of all the sort of the, the, the theatricality of it. And I think that that's also playing into just the fact that he wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about making things and pointing cameras at people or putting people on stages and what that means and why we do that uh, for the artists and for the audience. And that's not to take away what you're saying, Kenny, because I agree with you. I think that that there were definitely some moments in this where I watched it and 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 it was cringeworthy. Um, but I, but I think that he wants us I, cringing and I think he's saying something with those cringes. And, and I want to make something clear i'm not saying like this shouldn't be right it's like it's not that like i don't think it's not i i wasn't even really sitting there and cringing my question isn't isn't my point isn't so much mike lee shouldn't have made this in 1999 it's that attitudes have changed and i think that this is a relic of both of the times the time it's set and the time it was made and I think it has to be evaluated on those two terms. On uh, which is to say, yeah, I think this does have some problem. I think the I don't think just the Mikado. I think Topsy Turvy has some problematic some problematic features here that I don't necessarily think should come into discussion on the on the merits of the film, good or bad, because I mm-hmm. think we do often get into this situation with movies from 99 where we're like problematic bad therefore you never watch this movie again therefore throw it away in the in in the dumpster fire and burn it to hell that's not what i'm saying in any way i'm just saying like from 2021 i do think that there were some decisions made that were oblivious to certain social dynamics that you would not ignore today and and uh made me a little like kind of it gave me pause before i certainly full-throatedly endorse the movie. That's all. I'm going to give a Does synopsis. that make sense? Is that too much? I, I mean, I, listen, we, I, I, I hear you. Um, I, I guarantee you that Karen does as well. We might not agree, but I think that, I, I think that you know, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I, I think that you're also, I mean, and again, there's a part of me too that's like, I think if the movie, if you connected with the movie more, you might not have the same issues with it. I don't know that that's true. And I'm sure I don't just, but I think that there, the, the, you know, the, the character work and the connection to the world and the connection to everything that sort of Mike Lee was trying to do, had that resonated with you, I think perhaps 
you would have locked into this specific stuff in a different way. I hear you. I hear you. I, I think that there's a certain generosity that I have not afforded this movie. Um, but I don't think, at least for me, I don't think in this particular case that, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think that I'm wrong based on my experience with the film, my subjective experience. Okay. Um, I'm just going to give a very brief synopsis and a little bit of context. Uh, Woody and entertaining dramatization of the story of the famous partnership between lyricist William Gilbert and composer Arthur Sullivan with a wealth of authentic Victorian detail. This accounts the lives of the musical duo concentrates on the good natured antagonism between the two creative geniuses focusing on the turning point of on their road to fame and riches, the production of the Mikado written and directed by Mike Lee, who did naked secrets and lies, happy go lucky along with many other great films. Topsy Turby opened on December 17th, 1999 against Stuart little bicentennial man and Anna and the King. It would go on to make $6.2 million in North America on a $20 million budget. It's got 89% on rotten tomatoes from critics, 79 from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film four stars saying Mike Lee's topsy turvy is a work of a man helplessly in love with the theater. In a gloriously entertaining period piece, he tells the story of the genesis, preparation, and presentation of a comic opera, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, celebrating all the dreaming and hard work, personality conflict, and team spirit, inspiration, and mundane detail of every theatrical presentation, however inspired or inept. Every production is completely different, and they are all exactly like this. Not everyone is familiar with Gilbert and Sullivan. Do they need to be to enjoy Topsy Turvy? No more, I would suspect, than one needs to know all about Shakespeare to enjoy Shakespeare in love. Although with both films, the more you know, the more you enjoy. The two films have been compared because both are British, both are about theatrical geniuses, both deal with theatrical lore. The difference is that Shakespeare in Love centers on a love story. Topsy Turvy is about the love of theater. Romantic love ages and matures. Love of the theater, it reminds us, is somehow always adolescent. Heedless, passionate, guilty. It is one of the year's best films. Um, You know, I, I think that... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's a lot of things that were sort of bouncing around in my head as I was watching the film. Um, the performances, obviously, are one of the things that jumps out at me. But um, I also really love that the impetus of the film is about Arthur Sullivan and his desire to change. And his producer is just wanting him to keep playing the hits, um, which I think resonated with me um in in the world that we live in right now to a certain degree it feels as though you know uh with franchises and the like it's not a surprise that it's working why do you want to break it we're making money we're doing well don't fuck with it if it ain't broke don't fix it um but i also feel like 
it was kind of Mike Lee cashing in his secrets and lies blank check. Um, this feels like the biggest budget he's ever had, really. I mean, this was like, it makes me wonder if he always kind of had some sort of a, he came, he, first of all, it should be said that Mike Lee started in theater uh, mm-hmm. and then ultimately started and, and matriculated his way towards filmmaking. So there does seem to be this, I want to make my theater movie someday. I don't know what that necessarily was and maybe he didn't either, but this felt like, I can like I can get twenty million dollars now, and I might never be able to get twenty million dollars again. Mm-hmm. So I'm going all in. Um, did that? Did any of that occur to you, Karen, as you were watching it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like even looking at, I guess more recently, he's had more success with making bigger movies. Like he just did Peter Lou, which was another period yeah. piece, and Mr. Turner. But those are anomalies in his work, which normally aren't necessarily as low budget as you can get. That would be misleading, but are pretty spare in Mm -hmm. terms of what they look like and in terms of what he has to work with in terms of set and um, design. This is so opulent in every single sense of the word. Like every set is insane. It's, it's crazy that they like put on the entire Gilbert and Sullivan show and also made a movie. Like that's two different things that you have to create Mm -hmm. sets for and design for. So it's, there's a lot more to look at, I guess, in this than a lot of his, a lot of the rest of his movies. He also um, I, there's a bunch of stuff I learned that I had no idea. He th- that the so the entire cast sang all their own parts, so they all could sing all of this, and great. all of the orchestra played all their own instruments, which is also amazing. That's nice. But then there was a shot where one of the people in the orchestra's watch was seen, which was a modern <laughs> watch, and they digitally erased it. Like that's, which is not cheap as we all can test. So there was a very sort of like Mike Lee being very specific about what he wanted. The other thing I love is that Andy Serkis learned to play the violin for the movie for a scene that didn't make the final cut of the movie, which I think is just Also like one of the more chaotic Andy Serkis performances. (laughs) Which says something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He is, so I guess the guy he's based on, was a um, an unorthodox dancer, I think, was the way that, that he was described at the time. Yeah. But Andy Circus turns him into Gollum, essentially. Like, he, was, he just he's doing all this insane gesturing, which I, I mean, obviously, I adore uh, Andy Circus. His hair looks just insane. Like he's just he's he's tremendous in it. But like you also have like Leslie Manville, Timothy Spall, Kevin uh, Kevin McKidd, um, Shirley Henderson, who. Uh, was also in train spotting with Kevin McKidd. They were a couple mm-hmm. in train spotting, which I think is also weird um, and great. It's, it's just, I really feel like it's a movie that, you know, as I mentioned, I saw in 99 and just couldn't really process and couldn't appreciate for what it was. And even watching it yesterday took 24 hours of processing. It's an embarrassment of riches. It feels like to me. And it's, it's really sort of giving you a lot and, it can be overwhelming, I guess, is sort of what I'm getting at. I, I don't I don't know that uh, I knew how to process this film. When Karen and I were talking shortly before Kenny jumped on, we talked about um, Mike Lee's filmmaking process, but we also talked about Wong Kar Wai, who has a somewhat similar mm-hmm. filmmaking process, and by that meaning that he doesn't have a script when he starts making his movies. And there's an impressionistic kind of uh, dreamlike, you know, their vibes. You're just sort of enjoying them for the way they feel. Um, and I, and Mike Lee makes films similarly, except for him, he just wants you to spend time with people that he loves and cares about. And he hopes that you will too. 
I don't think that's always true, but uh, I, I, whatever. Yeah, I, that's fair. I, that's fair. I, th- I think that Mike Lee's process necessarily mm-hmm. is a bit of a crapshoot. And I don't necessarily mean it's a bit of a crapshoot. You're going to get a good movie. You're going to get a bad movie. Sure, sure, it's sure. a bit of a crapshoot in terms of what you're going to get narratively and where these actors are going to take it. Sure. Um, so I don't, you know, Happy Go Lucky and Secrets and Lies and Naked, I don't feel uh, kind of kind of hung on the surface quite the way this does. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I do feel this kind of hangs on the surface. I think a lot of that has to do with um, – the the breadth of characters in this mm-hmm. and uh the attempt to kind of show this whole company which i think is i guess what i'm i guess what, what really kind of keeps it keeps coming back to is all, everything you're saying is true uh and yes it certainly does feel like a group of people ragtag or not coming together to create something in a in a, in a way that reminds me of productions I've been in, but they it reminds me of the more boring productions I've been in, the ones that didn't have a lot of drama behind the scenes, the ones where everything seemed to go right, and the ones where the you know the the director was a very steady hand, uh, which he is a remarkably steady hand who has complete control of his cast um, to the point where that scene where they they fight for Timothy Timothy Spall is very respectful the whole time. The whole thing is very respectful and. Uh, and measured. And I, I guess in the end of the day, a production that works and works this, I, I think, flawlessly is not that exciting. It is not quite as exciting as Cradle Rock, which I thought was really kind of a thrilling story about people who came together yeah. um, and were, and were fight and, and were, were together till the end to, to produce something great. And I would argue produce something that had, you know, meaning and lasting effects beyond, uh, the show and even it reminded me of um just a little bit of sweet and lowdown i don't know if you felt that at all too phil of course sweet lowdown is really just about one guy and his own creative process right but right still, this idea of of getting pulling everything together in the moment and having everything work out it reminded me of the scene where he came down on the moon and it fell apart it wasn't that great um things go wrong in the theater and I didn't feel that that sense of that live theater thing, that sense of any moment this all could go south, any sense of any moment anything goes wrong, this person doesn't hit the mark, this person doesn't light the right scene, this person sneezes in the audience. Like theater is the, the rush of theater because when when Eber talks about uh, at the end, you know, theater is adolescence, that that last paragraph of his review really resonated with me. Um, how my love of theater does take me back to a very childlike or you know adolescent place—the wonder, the the playing pretend, the the doing things embarrassing with your friends, and kind of locking arms and saying we're going to do this together, strength in numbers. But that high wire act when you're actually on stage, uh, there's nothing like it. The rush, there's nothing like it. And I just I, – I didn't get that feeling from this movie. I got a process movie, which again, that's okay, but it doesn't affect me the same way other movies do. I mean I think – I don't mean this in a mean way, but I do think that is a 
problem of perspective where it's you want one thing out of a movie which it isn't um but i also think in to a certain degree if we have a scene of something going wrong on stage that's almost too dramatic for a mike lee film like that's too much where it's like it's also kind of addressing theater in a way where the problems that we learn about where it's like there there's a pay dispute they all have two of them have addiction problems that potentially affect their work this is the stuff that gets into the nitty-gritty of like this is when you've put this performance on a hundred times and it's not necessarily the same kind of spark that you associate with opening night or producing a fresh thing i want to just Go back to the problem perspective notion. I'm not invalidating this film. No, I'm not right? saying that at all. Where so, I'm saying like the fact that you don't enjoy it, I think as we, as you have said and as we've discussed, doesn't invalidate the merits of the movie. It's just an explanation as to why you personally don't find it as right. I, I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not invalidating this film. This film, again, exists on its own merit, and it's very clearly successful within the within the. Um, context of what it was trying to do what it was trying to do success or a successful execution of this particular movie is not something that i found personally enjoyable and i don't necessarily i'm not necessarily saying that is entirely because my experience in the theater is different from the experience of the people who did the mikado in 1885 i am saying part of that is because uh my experience in the theater is different and what I find exciting about the theater comes from a different place. That doesn't mean that this can't also be a uh, a worthwhile and valid experience. It's completely valid. It just doesn't do it for me. And that's the only yeah, I mean, that's the only I, point I can kind of go on. No, and listen, I, I'm not just just to be abundantly clear. And I don't want to speak for Karen; just speaking for myself. I, I, I'm not. I'm not expecting to turn you around on this movie. Uh, I, I I understand where, you, where you're coming from on it. And I think that it's, and that's obviously completely valid. It's entirely subjective. Um, I, I think that this film is trying to do a lot of things. And I think that, um, I mean, just, just looking at the social issues that the film is talking about, you have Grossmith's use of morphine, you have the alcoholism and the, the single motherhood, you have the, the uh, Sullivan's French brothel mistress who has an abortion. Um, you know, you've got the Savoy Theater being one of the first theaters to have electricity, the first use of telephones. Like he's trying to, to jam in all of this Victorian sort of quote unquote everydayness, which mm-hmm. is classic Mike Lee in terms of just like throwing you into a world. Um, generally speaking, his worlds tend to be smaller, a little bit more intimate and more perhaps more character oriented. But um, it's a bit of a sink or swim film. And it's not to say that you drowned Kenny. It's that I think that you just, <laughs> it, it's that you didn't like that. The film just didn't speak to you, right? Like you're either, it's either going to, or it's, I would argue this is kind of a Mike Lee thing, right? Like you're either yeah. going to like the way he makes movies and they're either going to speak to you. And, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you liked secrets and lies. Of I love secrets and lies. Right. I, I think it's a, I think it's an amazing film, but there's, uh, you know, it's there, just a, it's that, a completely different animal. It's a completely different kind of yeah. film. I, I, yeah. If you told me these two films were made by the same person, I would never believe you. Right. Um, so. And I also want to say too, Kenny, that you know my, my limited experience in theater is is I was in a bunch of plays at summer camp, and uh, it, it was it, it was some of the best summers of my life. I had a great time, and I know what you're talking about, Kenny, in terms of that 
uh, that nervous energy, that crackle that comes with the potential of people making mistakes and, and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I love movies about that too. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it needs to be one or the other. Um, so I, I, I'm just, yeah, sort no, of, it, do, it, it doesn't. That's a good point. Like I didn't mean to say like I was pitching for things to happen that didn't actually yeah. happen. This is a no, historical I drama. I appreciate that. But I, I, I would also say that the loss of that, what we're mm-hmm. talking about had to be a thing here. It had to be a thing that these people were all veterans. And I think he hit that a little bit at the end. But these people were all veterans and the thrill was gone. Like I would have I would have maybe considered that um potentially, or maybe well, considered the workaday thing. Because, you know, we're all now doing what we love and we've done it for a while. And it does get to a point where, oh my God, I'm I'm doing the job I wanted to do, but it feels like a job. That's a weird kind of feeling as well. Sure. I it's, would I would also yeah, go ahead. I would also just say that I think this film starts <laughs> with as much energy as Mike Lee can muster. <laughs> it, and by that, I mean you have Sullivan waking up with a start. He's got kidney problems. Mm-hmm. He's, he's struggling. He's in pain. There's the, 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 I have to get to the theater. This, the, the sort of the propulsive nature of I need to do this. This needs to happen. Um, he gets there. There is that backstage energy in the first five, 10 minutes of the film. You know, it, it, it is trying to give you a little bit of the juice that you're talking about, Kenny, up top. Um, it doesn't Gilbert, really do it again. But. Well, Gilbert's reading of the review. Yes, yes. It's, you know, it's that, that's a pretty classic inciting incident. I mean, Broadbent so, is also just so yeah, good. It's, 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 it, I, that's kind of why I think I'm, I'm, I'm left cold by the film. It was right. set up in a very classic kind of way, <laughs> right? Right. It is set up that you know this guy has lost his fastball. Can he regain it? Um, and then I don't. Then I don't feel like that was again. It doesn't have to be capitalized on, you know, you know. but it does leave you a little cold sure. when it is set up in kind of a classic. Uh, in, in a classic, you know, eight minutes into the movie, sure, we're going to give you the inciting incident. I mean, I, I, I want to just, you know, there isn't a tremendous amount of plot. I, there are some beats and some stuff I do want to unpack with, obviously, with both of you. Um, that scene in particular where he's reading the review and he, he gets in the faces of his, I guess it's like his his staff or whatever. And and is reading the whole like topsy turvid. I mean, thank you very much. Like he's just like in their faces and then says, burn it. Like he's just, he's broadbent. um can do so like can go so big and can go so small and and this film really shows that range those scenes with kitty where like mike lee talks a little bit about the fact that from his research it seems that gilbert had some repressed sexual something or other that no one really like he flirted a lot but like he didn't seem like a particularly sexual animal um and like every scene they have is Kitty being like, I'm not tired. You mm-hmm. can stay here. And he's just like, oh, I, I, I can't. I can't. And he just, he's got this like weird relationship with his parents. His father's a lunatic. His mother's, who you never see, sounds like an absolute lunatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I really love all of the sort of eccentricities and, and sort of smaller moments that in a, in a lesser filmmaker's hands would never make it onto the screen, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I almost like feel sort of bad for Alan Gordoner in this respect, where he's extremely yeah. good as Sullivan, but Jim Broadbent is so good as Gilbert, and I think gets slightly more 
interesting material to play with. Yes. Mm-hmm. I agree. He gets to be, I mean, you, if there's an arc, and I think we kind of underlined this a little bit earlier, if there's an arc, it's probably Gilbert's. Like, it, it seems like once Sullivan is convinced that the Mikado's the next thing they should do, he's kind of on board and, and he's kind of a straight mm-hmm. line for the rest of the film. Yes. Um, but but I do think that Gilbert has has most of the has most of the arc. Um, the the two the first scene where Sullivan and Gilbert uh, Sullivan basically calls him out on his topsy turvydom and being like it's another fucking yeah it's a magical elixir it's, magic it's another be- magical elixir <laughs> <laughs> he's like this time it's an elixir and just like moves on which is which is really funny <laughs> which is really funny yeah. and it's it's I I. I I don't know. I I never would have like presented it as these guys are geniuses, but the the that's again subjective too. I think it's established I think it's established the western canon that these guys are geniuses and we just move on. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. but I think that's the funniest part to me is like yes, they did the same thing more or less 12 times if you if you pulled out and this is true for Rodgers and Hammerstein. This is true for so many. This is true for almost every composer of musical sure. theater that their shit, they have a house style. Their shit almost always sounds the same. <laughs> Unless they actively are the kind of person who tries to not make it sound the same. Uh, yeah. And then I don't even know what to do with them. But mm-hmm. even more so, like uh, with Gilbert and Sullivan, the, 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 you know, the staccato key thing, staccato key thing they do over and over again, and the fitting as many syllables in into um, into a, a stance as possible uh, is, is not my idea of mellifluous, but that's just me. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because in in one of the interviews on the on the Criterion, Mike Lee is talking with his music director, who talks about how Gilbert would would write the words in a very kind of, as you said, staccato, very specific yeah, like way. First, which is interesting. Right. But, yeah. And then Sullivan would take some of those and go in the opposite direction with them and turn them into ballads or turn them into these like lovely, much more sort of melodious things, um, which, which again goes to show sort of how a great partnership can find those sort of that Venn diagram of that, of that overlap, which I think they do really, really well. And that scene with the producers where they're both being like, are you, are you really sure? Like you're sure that like you can't ever do another thing again. And the sort of the back and forth there, there's even just this wonderful, I thought a great moment when I think Gilbert goes to the bathroom and comes back and they get stuck in the doorway at one point And he says, Gilbert Sullivan, there's just something. <laughs> very- <laughs> you're, you're, and I guess, I guess this is another thing that I'm just kind of like, okay, sure. Whatever. But uh, opera in any other language. Mm-hmm. The librettist is second. Um, the He's librettist second. Second, is second to the composer. The lyrics are almost and always bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big point. Yeah. The lyrics are better. The lyrics are better unheard, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why watching it on YouTube with the lyrics under it, I'm like, this isn't. <laughs> you're, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to even know what's going on. You're just not mm-hmm. because you're supposed to be taken away. Now, obviously, there are people. Who, there are people who really do think this music is fantastic. That's a true fact. There, there are people that, and, and I would also, you mentioned, you know, some great also musical theater pairings. And I think most of them would point to Gilbert and Sullivan for being influential in one way or another towards sort of how they got to where they're going, whether or not they love their work and the, or not. And the evolution and in the evolution of musical theater from opera to what we have today, mm-hmm. they're a necessary step. Like mm-hmm. they, 
it, it doesn't 100%. exist without them. You can't go from the from you know the operas of the 1700s, 1800s to Rodgers and Hammerstein without mm-hmm. Gilbert and Sullivan. I accept that and I appreciate that, but I do think it's I keep I, I kept trying to think of of a comparison for me, and it, it reminds me a little bit of there uh, of the the crooners of the fifties, not named Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett, <laughs> who were the biggest people at the time, who were who were who were pop music. Who we don't even acknowledge today, the Perry Cuomo's of the world. Uh, that's, how, <laughs> that's that's the level of genius I think they have. I think they're the Perry Cuomo. Sure. Of I, I mean, there's isn't there something to be said for like? I appreciate they were successful, but I right, think they, the most popular they, stuff scratched an itch at that particular time. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and to this day, I don't know, but the Brit, the Brits are different. I, I think there's also. I really love. <laughs> I very the Brits often, are different. The Brits are when different. What we do, and what we do, what we do, uh, Anglophilic stuff mm-hmm. on this podcast, which happens a lot. I don't, know, yeah. I don't know if you know, but mm-hmm. the Brits make the Brits a make a lot of movies, um, particularly about themselves. Uh, I I almost always come back to this. You know, uh, they're the Brits. <laughs> like, they're just- <laughs> I mean, I think that. Um, I don't know, between watching between watching Ted Lasso and and I will destroy you, which is like what I've been Whoa. watching recently. That's a um, real whiplash between those two things. Well, yeah, the two different two different versions of of yeah. England, but actually two really interesting versions of two really interesting versions of what England is and and, and the breadth of what England is, and just two ways in which this con- that that country, two different groups of people, so different from what we have here. So, well, I mean, we're going to we'll just wait till we cover Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. We'll oh get to God. see the other side of uh, right. the other. <laughs> maybe if, if Carol wants to come back for it. Yeah. I'm but uh, I do think that um, there, there is one, one of the scenes that I really loved was the scene with Sullivan and the orchestra where it's jumping around in time and he's teaching them the different things and you're seeing them play it at different points in, in time. Um, I just I get a kick out of I just love visual storytelling when like you can tell me a story without actually needing me to hear dialogue. I don't know. I just really love the one-to-one of it. And I, I think that, that Mike Lee does it really beautifully in, in that um, in that scene. Uh, I thought that the, the reveal of Grossmith's drug addiction was like all of those sort of like, there's a bunch of kind of gut punches at the end of the film where basically Mike Lee just kind of holds back on a bunch of things and like really kind of hits you with about like five of them. You've got the 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 alcoholism you've got the drug mm-hmm. addiction um and then you have what i what i think might be the best scene in the movie which is the scene with gilbert and kitty and gilbert sits on the edge of her bed and says there's something inherently disappointing about success yeah which fucking really hits home um there, there's something about that. about that i'm sorry tell me about that <laughs> i just i, I think that <laughs> I What's think that I can only speak for for my you get, experience. You don't get to say that really hits home on this podcast without telling us why. No, uh, I, I think that I can only speak for myself, but I think that it just never plays out the way you think it's going to. Um, and obviously, success is entirely subjective. Um, but there's just everyone loves a yes, right? So, like when you sell a thing or when you work really hard towards a pitch and then you sit down and they're like, yes, we want this. Like when that happens in the room and you have an executive say like, yes, we want this like right now, that is an incredibly validating thing. And you leave it and you're like walking on air. And then 
that can't last forever. Like inherently you have to come back to earth and there is something inherently disappointing about having to come back down to earth on things. And I think that, that Gilbert, I mean, Gilbert's talking about it in different ways, but, but one of the most, sorry, go ahead. Okay. I want to go on that. That was my favorite part of the yeah. movie. And it was a, it was a, 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 a very specific emotion. I have never heard expressed the way it was expressed. Mm-hmm. Not, Yes, that success is alienating, or there's something about success that's never what you want. But it was that it was that he couldn't even talk to people after who had seen it and discuss it with them. Now, I uh, and and I will I will I will define success as you did the thing you wanted to do uh, in a way that you felt was successful, a way that you felt like you accomplished what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I was in a band. I've been in like a lot of bands, but I was in a band in college and we would play parties and we would play bars and we'd play whatever. And I never drank during the performances and I was an alcoholic, but I never drank during the performances. And as soon as we were done, I went home. I never hung out after. I never wanted to see anybody's face who had just seen me perform. Knowing full well that like I had done well enough where like they would ask me back and we made money and like we were a real band. But I never really uh, heard anyone else kind of express that because so many artists, particularly commercial artists, which Gilbert Sullivan was, which I would say we were at the time, we were doing it to get paid. We weren't doing it for the love of it. Um, We were doing it for the love of it, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Love the adoration. Love to sit around and and have people tell tell you how great you are, but I could never do it. It made me fucking beyond, beyond belief uncomfortable. So you do have to start to think about what exactly the spoils are for you. you no, know? for sure. I mean, I think thing. for me at least, yeah. Phil, the spoils are not failing, and <laughs> not, not failing, is, not failing is good it's enough. It's a good bar. It's a good bar you know? to set. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the that. Release yeah. is good enough, but that's why well, I, I think that out. it was just like it's, that no taps more. into what into what Kitty says right after that, where she's talking about how how she wishes that common people got rounds of applause at the end of every day. Mm. Like, it sounds like a, she's like, it sounds lovely to stand on a stage and have people applaud for you. And then, and then Gilbert goes, well done, Kitty. Well done. And he applauds her. And, too, bad and I don't, too bad she didn't live during the pandemic in New York. Well, that's true. But, but I, I do think that um, there's something very, um, then Kitty goes on to, to describe her idea for a play, which just, also just breaks my heart because the the subtext of that play is just how longing she is for her husband's love and affection. (laughs) It's what did you think of the scene, Karen? I mean, it's so good. Maybe my favorite. I I think you said that it is your favorite. I think maybe mine too, just because Leslie Manville is so, so, so sweet and so tender. And it is the culmination of like the small scenes that they have together throughout the movie where it's, the most sweet they are to each other in a scene. And yet Gilbert still can't totally open up to her, which is tragic, even though she's basically telling him about as clearly as you can without saying it explicitly that she's like, please like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, exactly. And also in, in a, in a way that she thinks he'll understand, like through (laughs) his art, she's literally being like, I'm going to talk to you in a way that I think you'll understand. 
and it's still just just like he can't he can't process it it's also i mean you talked about how unbelievably sweet leslie mandel is in this scene she is she's tremendous and then i think about her in phantom thread as the most vicious cutting yeah. person mm-hmm. in the world and you're just like her range is just unbelievable yeah um just I a mean, tremendous scene and then, and then you have uh, yeah it's i mean shirley henderson yeah, is everyone in it like <laughs> great <laughs> um you also have the scene uh after this where arthur is talking with fanny rollins who's his i guess mistress prostitute friend i don't know what the best way to describe her mm-hmm. is uh who alludes to her being pregnant and having to have a procedure and him saying well i'll send you to my i guess this has happened before um yeah. and uh and he says, you know, I'm sorry you have to go through that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also sort of like, are you? Like, I just, I don't really know <laughs> what I'm supposed to take away from Sullivan in that. It's a very interesting scene. Um, and there's actually, there's an incidental music pass, uh, a, a music cue at that time in that scene from Gilbert and Sullivan's Lalanth, I think is how mm. you say it. And there's a lyric uh, plead for my boy, he dies, which is playing in the background of, of that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's not that he's not tender, because he is, but it also feels like, I guess, just that's the way things are. I, I don't I don't know what, what you guys took away from that scene. I thought it was bold. <laughs> or nothing. I thought it was, thought it was bold as shit. Sure. Um, to sure. include it, to include it in that context. I didn't think, you know... Yeah. When you're putting when you're putting a capstone on a character like that, to have that mm-hmm, be the yeah. capstone, that was really something. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, there's also the the height of privilege that that he sure. that, that that his situation afforded him at that time, um, and they're really as sweet as he was to her, and he was quite sweet to her and tender, like you said, mm-hmm. Phil. There is a certain level of um, treating her like a like a object um to have her go have to go through that um but it felt very much like i'm i'm the man in this equation and thus this is how this has to be necessarily but it didn't it it, that that didn't feel like an issue to me that that was just a i don't know that just kind of felt like don't forget it felt to me like just don't forget what you know. Don't forget that things never change. I guess that you know the patriarchy is what it is, and it always has been. And even people who are nice and making beautiful operas about uh, lovely people are, are are still prone to using their you know position in life to treat other people poorly. Yeah, it, it's. I agree with everything you're saying in terms of like you're really saying something. Um, with the last scenes of your characters, right? Like mm-hmm. this is it. This is where you're leaving them. This is this is the this is the period at the end of the sentence. Um, so it is it is speaking very loudly that this is the the final scene with Sullivan and 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 how he perceives Fanny, how he perceives himself. Um, it it is interesting. I, I yeah. I, and then I mean, if I'm not mistaken, uh, doesn't Mike Lee make a film about yeah Vera Drake abortion? Yeah, Vera, Vera Drake, correct? Yeah. Uh, so I have not seen the film, and um, I'd say but. I'd say Secrets and Lies is about abortion. Like he yeah. he ha, he has a he has it, it's obviously rattles around in his head a lot. Clearly, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's it does feel like 
Mike Lee and Ken Loach have sort of are are kind of the 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 patron saints of <laughs> of sort of you know middle lower class people yeah. to some degree or another, right? Like it feels like that the, the their uh, blue collar their films tend to be about blue collar people, and I think that. Um, the healthcare system tends to let down those people the most. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if that's something that weighs heavy on, on Mike Lee. It, it, it certainly feels that way subtextually in, in his films. I think it's sort of almost maybe sort of inevitable that he would make a movie like Rear Drake, just because again, as you've mentioned here, like it is an inescapable part of class politics where if you have money like Gilbert or like Sullivan does, it's easy to take care of a problem like this. Whereas sure. if you don't have those kinds of resources or reputation, it's something that could potentially ruin your life, which is kind of the bottom line of Vera Drake, where this woman is doing these back alley abortions to try to help less privileged women. And his movies are all about class in that sense. Like, And I was also thinking of, as you mentioned, like Ken Loach making like, Sorry, We Missed You, which is all about how the gig economy just destroys the people who have to work in it. <laughs> like, the, it is something, it's all sort of intertwined with the class politics that these people are interested in. There, the, and there is kind of, I mean, this this film isn't, I mean, I guess it's about class in the sense that this film is primarily taking place in, in the higher echelon of, of, you know, class in this, in this time. Um, but you do sense the struggles financially, specifically of the actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have that, there's sort of this, this swath of time, I don't know, probably about a five, 10 minute sequence of them negotiating their deals with the producer and trying to find ways to, to make ends meet. Um, you know, we talked obviously about the chorus and, and, and standing up for, for that solo and, and, and really kind of putting themselves out there. But I would, I, I would argue that that, um, that all kind of feeds into this. I I remember watching those scenes and negotiation scenes and feeling like, okay, I mean, do we need this? This movie's two hours and 40 (laughs) minutes. Like, do we need this? But it does pull all of those people's threads together. And it does really make you feel the depth of the bench of characters that exist in this film. Um, So I I, I think that that's, uh, I, I mean, listen, I think it's a very special film, but um, do you want to rate this uh, movie, Kenny? Yeah, let's rate it. (laughs) Uh, I, I'm going to go first. Um, I saw this in 99, as I mentioned. I thought uh, I liked it. Uh, I, I didn't love it, but I liked it. Probably would have given it a 75 back then. Um, I think that I appreciated it. I, I, I would. I, I think I actually owned the DVD of it, so I definitely watched it a couple times. Um, but I hadn't seen it in, in quite some time when I watched it the other day. I bought the, the, the Blu-ray Criterion back in 2011 when it came out, <laughs> and I've been sitting on it waiting until this very moment, Kenny, for us to, to watch this film. So, yeah, uh, it, does, it does to me. Um, all that being said, uh, before this podcast, I probably would have given it about an 88. I think that I, um, I, I appreciated it a lot more. I liked it a lot more. Um, y- you know, the... Watching those special features, as I mentioned, discussing the film with you guys today, um, I think I like the film more. I think I'm at a 90 um, in terms of just uh, really enjoying being in the world. And I, I don't know that that a movie can strive for anything more than for you to want to spend time in the world that it is creating. So if it's doing that, then it's doing something right. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fair. <laughs> <laughs> 
glad you think so. What about you, Kenny? What are your thoughts? I didn't like it as much as you guys. Yeah, no, I think, yeah. I think, we've, uh, I think we've survived that. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you know, I said what I said. I don't want to really, really get, get too much into it. I gave it a 52. Um, that was... Uh, <laughs> That that was uh, that was as, as nice as I could be, mm-hmm. um, because it looks so good, and because there's so much there's 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 here's what I said. I said I don't ride for films on production value alone, and that's kind of how I felt. It's great to look at the 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 performances are great. There's so many great elements that didn't come together to make a great film experience for me. Uh, Fifty two is a is a Slight recommendation. I'm going to keep it right there. 52. Go ahead, Karen. Karen? Uh, I don't give it. I feel like I overrated Fantasia. Did I give Fantasia like a 99 last time? I don't remember. Yeah, I think you, you give it a very high review. You give it a 99. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, I gave Julian Donkey Boy a 99. So, you know, you, you never did. know. You did. Yeah. I did not give it a 99. I, but I, it's still in my top 10 for the year. Okay. Oh, wow. okay. Okay. Um, I okay. Uh, I'm gonna pretend I don't remember what I gave Fantasia 2000 and say that Topsy Turvy. I would give it a 95 or so. I I love this movie. I think it's great. All right. Um, I um I'm I curious. Like yes, sir. Go ahead. This is the, the the first pod. This is the podcast. The only other time I felt like this on on a podcast that we did. And Karen, I wonder if you have thoughts on this film. Mm-hmm. Was when we did Existence. <laughs> which Phil and our other uh, guest, who was who was our guest for that? Barry Hertz from the Globe and Mail. Yeah. Barry Hertz from the Globe and Mail. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely loved that film, and I did not get it whatsoever. Uh-huh. Did not like it, and uh, <laughs> and felt and, and very much felt like I was on. I I, I I I felt like I was on the outside of a bubble of people who understood the movie in a way I could never. Do you have feelings about the movie Existence, Karen? Um, I haven't seen it. I only know it through reputation. Oh, Karen, I think that's a Karen movie. I'm <laughs> very curious about what, what Karen would think of Existence. I mean, I say that lovingly. Yeah, I, I just I, think that that, I mean, it's Cronenberg, so it's mm-hmm. divisive, but like, I, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on Existence. Yes. Okay. And in America, it's divisive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I would also. <laughs> Uh, I would I would also be curious because do you you play video games right Karen I do, yeah I, I'm looking okay, I so, pulled up the Wikipedia summary as soon as you guys started you mentioned it and it says it follows a game designer who finds herself targeted <laughs> by assassins while in a virtual reality game but like Cronenberg's version of that sure so. I think I I actually think I think I know I gave that a fifty that was very it was it was, it was I decided to give that a fifty I think that's <laughs> where did. it lived because it kind of hit hit me right there. But I think I actually like it more now <laughs> yeah. looking back at it. And I think yeah. I might feel the same way about Topsy Turvy in a year and a half. Um, there's, there, there, there are visuals from Existence. There are, there are moments from Existence I'd never seen before, I've never seen since, and have never left mm-hmm. my brain. It does some shit. Yeah. You, it does some shit that you'll, you, you haven't seen before you won't see again. So yeah. there's, uh, It does some shit you can't unsee. Um, right. A lot of body ports. If you're into body ports, that movie is yeah. for you. Okay. Um, and and uh, I I just I love I love this podcast. It goes without saying, but I love that we just connected Topsy Turvy to Existence <laughs> through Kenny, and that is a glorious thing. That's that, how I roll. 
<laughs> but speaking of of video games and virtual reality, Karen, I don't know if you've seen the film that we are covering next week. Uh-huh. But have you seen a film called The Thirteenth Floor by any chance? No. Do you know this film? No. You should look it up. Um, right it's uh, it's uh, Greg Bierko, I think wow, is how you say his name. The first Greg Bierko. You got to tell it's it's the word thirteenth, not thirteen, the number. <laughs> Um, it's uh, Gretchen Maul, Vincent D'Onofrio. It's a virtual reality uh, thriller that um, Craig Bierko is a guy that people thought might have happened for a might be might be a guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if almost anyone else was cast in the lead of this film, the movie would have made exceedingly more money than it did. Um, but we're going to be covering that uh, mm-hmm. next week with uh, Jessica Ellis is coming on uh, to talk about 13th Floor with us. Um, but Karen, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you so um, much, Karen. Thank you so truly, much. Truly, truly, truly. This was, uh, you know, I was, it was, Kenny and I chatted a little bit. We were texting a little bit before this episode. And to have you talk about this film, which is a film that I think a lot of people love, um, but needed to be unpacked in, in the proper way. And uh, I really just, uh, I really do appreciate you being the one to do that with us. So, no, thank, thank you, you so, so much for having me. I love to talk about movies with you guys. Sorry if I got argumentative. <laughs> no, please. No, 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 no. It, I, I knew that it would. Because I be, 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 because because I did because I didn't because like I said I I, I didn't love something on the acceptable list, but <laughs> I I hope that but, you didn't feel attacked by either of us because I certainly I didn't mean that at all. all. I don't feel attacked at all. Um, I meant what I said. You are true. <laughs> I've said this to Phil before. You are you are the best film critic we have. It's like so kind of you. We are. I say it all the time, uh, and like, and like when fucking and when like when fucking Siskel and Ebert like like when we talk about there should be a new Siskel and Ebert show. It's Karen and someone. So David Sims is who I think it should be. Karen, Karen, and Karen and someone is is who I always say. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, we're. I mean, it's, really, it's it's honestly a thrill that you come on our podcast talk about the. You've only talked about absurd movies with us. So it's true. It's true. I don't know if we should give you something that's not ridiculous, but um, thank well, you this, I don't that. know that this film is ridiculous, but it's, it's literally called Topsy Turvy. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll just say this uh, before before we say goodbye. I I, I agree with everything Kenny's saying. Mm-hmm. You are one of the best. Oh, film critics sorry, out there. I didn't mean to mm-hmm, my own praise. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I just and and. I mentioned this before we got on mic a little bit, but I, I think it's worth reiterating that, you know, in the Twitterverse, in film Twitter, echo chambers, all that sort of shit, we hear about the same movies, the same great movies. And how much I appreciate that you change the focus whenever you can to things that people don't necessarily know about or to just shine a bright light on a thing that deserves our love and our adoration. We talked about Parasite being one of those things, and, and that is one of those things. But just in general, um, how... And also John Wick, and I'm not kidding. Like, I know you're not. I know. Take, like, take, like, taking, t- taking it serious, <laughs> taking John Wick seriously, I think actually did change the way uh, people talk about movies like that, so... But I also just think that now more than ever, it is so vitally important to have people like you out there championing the things that people don't necessarily get behind. So we appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. That's extremely kind of you. Keeping discourse alive. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, well, we hope to have you back someday to talk about something else. Uh, hopefully um, sooner and- than it took. <laughs> it was, Listen, again, it was my fault. I, I don't... I, I'm just happy you came back. So I don't care if it takes another year and a half for you to come back. We're just, we're thrilled to have you on. Um, and, and thank you so much for being here, Karen. Thank you. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.